Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. So grateful for the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. If you have a phone, you can take that out. And you can take a picture of the QR code that you'll see on the screen. And uh, if you don't want to do that, you can also find this, of course, online. If you go to our website, dwellingplacemovement.org, and click our sermons under our media, and the sermon card will be there as well. You know, today is a Sunday, so today is a day of joy. But for many of us, if we're honest, today doesn't sometimes feel like a day of joy. Just a few days ago, another shooting in Highland Park On Monday for the 4th of July, we took the lives of six people and harmed many others, right? And of course, created a ripple effect, so to speak, of trauma that reaches much further than you and I could ever imagine. And of course, all of us, we know that that's just one of many such instances that have happened over the last decade. We were still, even Monday, reeling from what happened in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas and Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that, my friends, gun violence is just one type of violence in our nation. There's always been trouble. The book of Job tells us again and again that line, man has few days and full of trouble. As long as there have been human beings, there has been trauma, there's been betrayal, there's been brokenness, there's been violence, there's been murder, there's been corruption. But we're living now. And we're living here. And we are, if I can say this, bearing the weight of it in a particular way. And if I can propose this to you this morning, I think in part, many of us as believers, Christians, have been called to be Christian. Or let me say it this way. We have been given a Christianity that doesn't know how to quite square itself with the brokenness of the world. Now, I realize for the next few moments, I'm going to be painting in broad strokes, but I want you to follow me. I think in general, we have been in America Christianized in one of two ways very poorly. Let me talk to you about those two ways. One is we have been taught to think magically about the brokenness of the world. Magically. And we've been taught that God will rescue us from what will happen to others who do not have God. So we've been taught God will protect us, but he won't protect others who don't know him. God will keep us safe, but others will have to endure it. Of course, that isn't true. And if it was true, it would be wrong to want it. It would be wrong to desire it. Because even if that were possible, I remember years ago I was speaking at a church, and um, I don't know quite if it was me or the Holy Spirit, but I'll go ahead and tell you the story anyways. I was speaking at a church, and this is almost seven, eight years ago, eight, over eight years ago, I guess. And I got to the end of my message, and someone comes up to me afterwards, and they wanted to talk to me about how I didn't have uh, strong enough, or I didn't believe strong enough in the authority of the believer. I didn't believe in that. And some of you may not know this, but Pentecostalism and charismatic kind of movement in America is kind of the mecca of what we call the word of faith movement. And this swept our nation in the last 20 years. And that's the style of Christianity 
that insist on the power of the believer to declare the future that he or she wants for himself. If you want a certain future, you declare it. You speak it into existence. And so what happens is I preached this sermon that day, and quite honestly, apparently, at least one, there were probably more than one, was a bit offended. And so they confronted me at the end with my lack of belief in the authority of believers. And so I just said, okay, well, explain to me what you mean. Talk to me about what you mean. And he said to me, well, if a tornado, and this was, by the way, in the aftermath of a tornado, actually many tornadoes, and I had said something in the message about suffering with those who suffer, and he was saying that I lacked the authority of a believer to actually speak to that suffering. And he said these words to me. He said, if I, if I was on my front porch and a tornado were coming to my house, I would just stand out on my front porch and I would rebuke it and send it somewhere else. And again, I don't know if, again, this was the Holy Spirit or me, but I said something just instantly to him. I said, you know what, friend? With all due respect, nothing could be less like Christ than that. Nothing could be less like Christ than that. And he looked at me kind of sideways, and I said, nothing could be less like Christ than having the authority over nature and then wielding that authority so you are protected and other people are killed. That's as Christless as a stance could be. And so Jesus in the storm, even in the gospels, doesn't direct the storm away from himself to destroy others' boats. He doesn't go destroy other people's boats. He doesn't want to kill other people that are on the lake. So I think, listen, you're going to have to follow me this morning. I think many of us have been conditioned to think magically about God, that God will protect us, or at least if I have the authority, I can guarantee the future that I want for myself. And that's just not true. It's also not true that prayer alone will fix what is wrong with our society. That's magically thinking. That we somehow think that prayer by itself is going to fix the societal ills that we're facing. Magical thinking, listen, doesn't work whether you are thinking about yourself or you're thinking about the society at large. Now, let's talk about the second way I think that people are Christianized that's just as much error. Many of us will have fallen into prey, so to speak, into a kind of mechanical thinking of how the world works. And you say, Pastor Craig, what do you mean? We abandon the way of thinking the way of Jesus when it comes to facing the real brokenness of the world. And so many of us were taught, this is what the Christianity we receive, that there are things that are spiritual and that's where God is at work. And then there are things that are political. And we just put all of the God stuff to the side and we don't let our God stuff affect our politics. Those are two different orbits. We just need to do political things because we got to think realistically about the world. So watch this. So whether we're thinking magically, which is another way to say passively, we're thinking magically or whether we're thinking realistically, can I tell you this morning that neither is true of Jesus. Neither is true of the way of Jesus. And part of what we have to recognize, church, is this, is that to become a Christian is not to identify and fill out the form to say, I am a Christian. To become a Christian is to have your whole life conformed fully to the whole life of God. That's what a Christian is. Your entire life, including your racism or anti-racism, we're going to get there in a moment, is fully, absolutely, entirely shaped by the character and the nature of God or character of God found in Christ. Nothing less than that. When God claims you for salvation, He claims you to fill you with His own life, 
to shape you with his own character, to make you become the kind of person in the world that makes God look good. To make God attractive to the world around us. That's who you're called to be. That's who I'm called to be. So in the shadow of what has happened, I want to see how when the Spirit comes, we don't think magically. Meaning, we don't just sit back and expect God to intervene while we stand and watch and applaud and just passively elect God deal with the issue. But secondly, when the Spirit comes, we don't think realistically. So we don't leave the church, follow me this morning, we don't leave the cross to the one side and take up whatever weapon we want to get our will done on earth. We think spiritually, capital S. We think Jesusly. We think godly. So let's dive in. In 591 in Rome, Pope Gregory the Great of the Catholic Church, he preached on Pentecost Sunday. I read this sermon of his just recently. And it was June 3rd that year, and he preached a long, a very long sermon from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel that you heard from Pastor Chad last week, and Acts chapter 2. Now, you got to understand, he's been pope for a little less than a year, and he was made pope because the previous pope died from a plague, died from a pandemic. Just a few weeks before this sermon, on, sermon, this sermon that he gives on Pentecost Sunday, in 591, he had led a procession through Rome with an icon of Mary that was painted by Luke the physician. Literally Luke, the physician who wrote the gospel. And they were praying for the plague to stop. And while he's parading through the streets of Rome, Pope Gregory has this vision of the angel Michael, Archangel Michael, sheathing his sword, which he takes to be a sign that the plague is ending. And then he comes to St. Peter's Basilica, which is the one who preached on the day of Pentecost, named after the one who preached on Pentecost, St. Peter. And he, in that sermon, 1430 years ago or so in Rome, Gregory begins by saying this. The coming of the Spirit settles on their bodies as fire and settles in their hearts as the sweetest love. The first Pentecostal Christians had the fire of God settle on their hearts, their heads, their bodies, and it settled on their bodies as fire and in their hearts as the sweetest love. The fire of God they see settling on their hands is a symbol of the fire of God that's been kindled in their hearts. And what Pope Gregory the Great says is that what's been kindled in them is nothing other than God's own love. Watch this. God's love for God, the Father's love for the Son, and God's love for us. Because of that sweetest of loves, he says, that has been awakened in us by the Spirit, we are now to go out into the world and love as we have been loved. We are to love that way. So here we are, 1,430 years later, in the shadows of our own tragedies, in the midst of an ongoing plague, and the message is exactly the same. The message never changed, friends. I want you to feel the weight this morning that we have no need to invent anything in our day and age. The same message that St. Peter preached on Acts, 33, or Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, or 29 or 30 AD is the same message that I hope to preach to you today. 1430 years after Pope Gregory preached, the same exact message. And the message is being passed down. And it's not magical, nor is it thinking realistically. It's thinking altogether differently. Now, 
But that being said, one of the most daunting tasks that we've had to grapple with as a culture and country is the issue of race. The problem of race, friends, has dominated us from beginning to end, and every day in America, in one form or another, it hits us in the face. I don't know about you, but I wonder often, is there ever going to be a final solution to the problem? We're going to get some finality. One of the things that has divided people along political and social and economic and cultural lines is the issue of race and the sin of racism. Because yes, racism is a sin. It's very demonic, actually. Very much a sin. And I started asking the question, we did as a team, how can we look at this subject, watch this, bibliocentrically and theologically? Can I tell you this morning, the issue of race is not new or unique to us. The issue of race is not a new issue. It was replete in biblical times as well. For example, let me give you one. In Numbers chapter 12, there was an interracial marriage between Moses and an African woman. Moses had been on the run for 40 years, and twice in verse 1, the Bible tells us that he married a Cushite woman. She was called a Cushite twice. Cushite is a black woman. And this caused the abandonment of our brother and our spiritual leader of the whole nation because of an interracial marriage to a black woman. So mad was God, so incensed was God at their literal racism that God himself does not send a messenger. He comes down himself and he strikes Moses' sister with leprosy on her skin. And he turns her white. And he says, you're not going to be healed until you repent of your racism. Until you repent of your issue, the sin of racism. So let's talk for a moment and define racism. Are you ready? Racism, you'll see it on the screen, is a conscious or unconscious belief in the superiority of one race over another race that manifests itself in the use of power or influence or resources or communication that's used to reject or repress people of another ethnicity. Now, I want you to see something. That individual racism has also imbibed itself not only in individual hearts, but in structural realities. So that whether it's economic racism or social structures or it's medical structures or it's political structures or it's financial structures, what racism does is it filters itself through so that whether known or unknown, it just becomes the way people accept as normal ways to operate. Now, I as a church leader don't have the ability necessarily to judge the world for their racism. They're lost. The thing and responsibility I have as a pastor is not to be so absolutely accurate about all that's going on. It's actually to be empathetic with what's happening in people's experience. What makes it worse is that when this attitude and action finds its way into the life of God's people, now we have an issue. And the reality is, church, unless we can fix it in the church house, why would we expect it to be transformational in the culture? It's never going to change culture if it's not changing the church. So rather than skip this issue, God, God doesn't do that. Since we're continuing in this mix of racial calamity and confusion, I thought this morning, why don't we appeal to the Word of God? Why don't we ask God's Word? Now, before we read God's Word, let me give you for a moment some understandings or frameworks from the psychological, sociological reality of racism, okay? Now, this is not gospel. This is sociology, but I want to present something to you that 
that I have come across in my own study. Because in light of the racial tensions in our nation uh, that have continued to surface in the U.S. over the last two years, I think I'm going to speak from whites for a moment because I'm white. I think white American evangelicals should embrace the opportunity to reassess our whole view of race and to reconsider how we can serve as agents of reconciliation. I think all of us could see we've not made as much progress as we hoped to have made, right? Since, since 1865. We've not made as much progress as we desire. Oh yeah, we've made progress, but not maybe as much as we've desired. So I've recently read a book by University of North Texas sociologist, his name is George Yancey. Brilliant man, African-American. He wrote a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock. And he presents in this book four conceptual models that dominate the discussion of race and racism in America. And each of them I want to present to you are flawed. And they're flawed because they don't account for the full biblical teaching on sin and redemption. So I'm going to outline real quickly for you. You'll see it on your card digitally and you'll see it on the screen. I want to outline two flawed concepts of racism and four flawed models. Let me talk about them just for a moment, okay? The first underlying the four deficient models are two flawed concepts. The two flawed concepts are individualism and structuralism. Let me explain to you what individualism and structuralism is. The conception of individualism views racism as something overt that can only be done by one individual to another. So you can only be racist if one person is being racist to another. Okay? And let me tell you who's most adequate to or prone to adopt this definition. It's evangelicals because we have a strong concept of, of personal sin. Evangelicals in America do not have a strong concept of corporate sin. We have a strong concept of individual personal sin. So individualism, a flawed concept. Here's the second one, structuralism. What does that mean? Structuralism says that, that society can perpetuate, perpetuate racism even when individuals in the society don't intend to be racist. So if a person's saying, no, I'm not racist, the society structurally can consist, consistently perpetuate the racism even when there's no intentionality to do it. The problem with these conceptions is they both ignore the spiritual and theological dimensions of race and they place too much emphasis on one side of the coin or the other. So can we find racism in individuals? Yes. Can we find it in structures? Yes. Now he gives us four models. Let's look at the first one. Emerging from those two definitions of these four models. The first one's colorblindness. Color blindness. What does that mean? It believes that to end racism, we have to ignore racial reality. So we make comments like this Oh, I'm colorblind. I don't see people's color. That's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. Oh, I just don't see people's color. I, I don't even, I can't even pick up on their color, which in turn re reinforces the negative power of race in our society, right? The strengths of this model are strong. It wants to stop individuals from being racist. It helps minorities to avoid looking for racism where it does not exist, yet it's flawed in several ways because it ignores the negative effects of racism handed down from generation to generation. It's unwilling to confront what's actually happened generationally. Here's the second flawed model, Anglo-conformity. Now this shares some similarities with colorblindness, but it's unique and that it views that racism and racial tension will be resolved when black people or Hispanic people have the same upward mobility that whites have. So in other words, racial problems are primarily economic and should be resolved primarily through government-sponsored programs. 
and that when the government starts providing opportunities for minorities to make the same amount of money as whites, then and only then can racism be, be destroyed, eradicated. It has a lot of weaknesses. It puts too much emphasis on economic solutions, and it wishes for minority cultures to accommodate themselves to white culture. And no culture should have to accommodate themselves to any other culture. Here's a third one, multiculturalism. What is this? This, this desires to build a model or a society in which distinct racial and ethnic groups preserve their own identities. This is probably what we see most in Europe right now and what we're trying to see most out of the current administration. So under, and this is the ironic part, under this multiculturalist kind of model, minorities tend to de degrade the culture of the majority. And this finds its way even to Christian perspectives. All right? So minority cultures go uncritiqued and only majority cultures get critiqued here. Flawed model. Fourth one, white responsibility. This model recognizes the historical racial sins of whites against blacks and it places the blame squarely on whites and no blame on blacks. So racial minorities cannot have prejudices because prejudices require structural power. So if you're racist, you're not racist if you don't have power over the person you're racist to. So this is what we call what? what? What, again, not what I call, what he calls white responsibility. Well, think about those four flawed models. None of them present the real idea that God puts forth in Scripture. If we can get a more excellent way, a more full understanding that, listen, both minorities and majorities, all ethnicities, all colors are called both to, re to repentance and entrust both with responsibility and move forward in what God has to say. So that what? If we get it right in the church house, we can be, bring transformation all the way up to the White House. Because when God's people get it right, then we have something to offer the culture. So when writing the church at Ephesus, look with me in Ephesians 2. Paul spends the first half of the chapter talking about the magnificent grace of God. He tells us we're saved by grace through faith. He tells us in the ages to come, God wants to manifest His grace. He comes to verse 10, and he says, it's because of this grace we're now workers. Everybody say workers. Isn't it amazing? We now got to get the job done. So watch this. Now that we've been redeemed, but curiously, he says when he finishes talking about grace... He goes to race. He goes from grace to race. And he says the first work, everybody say first work, of saved people ought to be the work of racial reconciliation. First work. The very first thing in verse 10, he says we are workmanship. And then he tells us about our work. And then verse 11 through verse 22, he talks about race. If you got your Bible, follow with me. Grace should lead to fixing the problems of race. Let me put it another way. If we're not fixing the problem of race, it's because we haven't fully understood the glory of grace. If we don't understand grace, we can't address race. And he opens it up to the biggest racial problem in the New Testament. What is it? It's the racial problem between Jews and Gentiles. Look with me in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, according to your earth suit, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Who were the uncircumcised? They were the Gentiles. The circumcised were the Jews. And like the Berlin Wall that stood between NATO and Warsaw, 
there was a division that was not to be crossed. The Jews rejected the Gentiles. Why? Because they were not racially pure. They were not religiously acceptable. But now, both Jews and Gentiles are claiming the same faith. And so Paul speaks into this calamity. And he says, now that you're saved, you need to fix this. See, the problem was even though they were on their way to heaven, they hadn't learned yet how to get along on earth. Somehow the thought that we're going to be okay up there didn't translate too well to we need to fix it out down here. And yet Paul is not willing for us to wait to get up there to repair this. Watch this. But the problem of race that leads to racism and its inequities is this. It's because we bring our histories to Christianity with us. We bring our histories to the Christian faith with us. The Gentiles only knew how to be Gentiles. Jews only knew how to be Jews. Yet they find themselves belonging to the same church, but they brought their past with them. It's not easy to let go of yesterday, is it, church? Especially when yesterday has some pain in it. Yesterday has some tension in it. It's not easy to let go of yesterday. But yet he says, you're a new creature in Christ. Well, how do you fix this so it doesn't go on century after century? It reminds me, church, of the story of a bear who was in a 12-foot cage. He was confined to a 12-foot cage. He was confined to that 144-square-foot cage. He had lived there year after year. He had been locked into that reality. That bear, because he had lived in it so long, he would get up when it was time to stretch his legs, and he would walk 12 feet, and he would turn around and walk 12 feet back the other way. But one day... He was transferred to a 36-foot cage, 36 by 36. But every time the bear walked, he would stand up to stretch his legs. He'd walk 12 feet, stop. He'd turn back around and walk 12 feet, stop. Turn back around and walk 12 feet. He never took advantage of the freedom it had because it had gotten so used to living in the confines of the past that it couldn't press on to the future. And so it was with these Jews and Gentiles, or let me just put it in modern vernacular, blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanics, yesterday can be so confining to how we were raised, what we were taught, what we experienced, the slurs that mom and daddy used, the language that we inherited, that you live in your racial cage and you're never released to be in this new environment that you find yourself in. So Paul doesn't stutter. He doesn't mix his words. It's true then and it's true now. Now, it's very interesting that in sports, people can work together across the color line. Isn't it interesting that people can do drugs together across the color line? Isn't it amazing how colors go away when a bong shows up? Isn't it amazing how an old indented Pepsi can with some weed on top of it causes the color lines to dissipate? People can do needles across the color line, across the class line. They can do activities together when it comes to sports, but when it comes to the family of God, boy, do we know how to split up quickly. We know how to segregate fast. And that's not because of something secularly. It's because there's something we don't understand. Paul's going to address it. He says, look, verse 13, but now, everybody say, but now. He has previously said in chapter 2, verse 4, but God. He said, but God. But now he didn't say, but God. He says, but now. He, he, he talked to them in chapter 2 about how we're apart from Christ, but then he says, but God. He, he employs the same language, but he doesn't say, but God. Now he says, but now. It's the same concept. In other words, this is a whole new situation, a whole new reality. 
And if you don't understand the new thing God has done, you're going to be trapped in your old racial cage. Y'all, can you look up here for a moment? Our problem today in America still is we have too many Christians trapped in their old racial cage. And they're trapped in their own racial identity. And because they're trapped there, they miss but now. So he goes on, verse 13, verse 14 and 15. Follow along with me. I need that text up there. But now in Christ Jesus, once who were, you were once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For He Himself, Jesus is our peace, who's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of hostility, having abolished in His flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now these are Christians He's talking to, but they weren't at peace. Did you know four times in this chapter Paul uses the word peace? He says this peace comes from understanding what we are now. Church, I do a lot of marriage counseling. I do a lot. And the reason I do it is because couples come to me in conflict and there is no peace. And they're fighting and they have anger and they have insensitivity to one another and they want me as a pastor, right, to sort out the miracle difficulties. Can I tell you what I've discovered now over a decade of doing this? I have discovered that the problem is not rooted ever in what they're bringing to me. It's never rooted in what they're bringing to me. What they're bringing to me is a symptom of something else. But because the symptom is in their face, they're not able to deal with the root that produced the fruit that brings them in for marital counseling. You know what the problem is? They never understood marriage. They never understood it. They never understood that when you get into marriage, you bring your past with you and what your mom and dad taught you and how your mom and dad acted and how the house looked and what took place in the home and what kind of words are used in the home. And they did not understand that when the two become one, listen, because they never understood, watch this, the root of marriage... They're living in the fruit of conflict. Because Christians across the race line have not understood the root of what happened when they committed themselves to Jesus Christ, then all of that stuff and racism they bring and they're fighting over it now. And Paul says, when you come to Christ, watch this, look at me church, God is not trying to fix something old. He is trying to create something new. He calls it one new man, not fixing two old racial people. That's not his intent. He doesn't want to fix old racist people. He's creating something brand new. It's an altogether different reality. A one new man. Now, he doesn't mean by this that you lose your identity or your race. He just means that your previous identity is no longer your point of reference. Can I say it this way? You ready? He's not saying Jews are Jews and Gentiles aren't Gentiles because he talks about Jews and Gentiles the rest of his letters. He's saying this new relationship to Christ is your starting point for everything else in your experience with one another. Look at me. The moment that this new relationship in Christ is not your starting point for your racial identity, you will forever live in racial conflict and confusion and debate and crisis. Why? Because you're starting in the wrong place. He himself is our peace. You know what Paul said in Galatians 
He says, listen, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's not all longer. Yet I live. Oh, I live. No longer me, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live. You know what he says? I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. You know what he's saying? I'm a Christian first. Would you say that with me this morning? Say, I'm a Christian first. You know what that means? He is my identity and my point of reference. He is my point of reference in every conversation. And he said that, Galatians 2.20, in the midst of a racial problem. You know what the biggest racial conflict we have in the book of Galatians is? Peter found out that the Gentiles could cook. And you know, Peter's up on the housetop, and he had this dream where a sheet came down. And it was all the hooved animals that Jews can't eat. And God told him to eat it. He said, I can't do that. He says, don't you call unclean what I call clean. And he does this to why? To go get him to reach Cornelius in his household, the Gentile convert, doesn't he? And you know what Paul had found? Paul had found the Gentiles know how to cook fried chicken. (laughs) And bacon, right? And sausage. And so what did Paul do? Or what did Peter do? He started eating with the Gentiles. But then his boys from the hood showed up. His Jewish friends. And you know what they did? They didn't accept what he was doing. So you know what he did? He left the Gentiles because his Jewish brethren wouldn't accept the Gentiles and he didn't want to lose his acceptance among his own race. And you know what Paul said when he said this? Folks, don't you miss this. Paul said, when I saw that Peter was not acting in concert with the truth of the gospel, I confronted Peter in front of every other believer because he was embarrassing the cross. And he, he had words with Peter. He looked at Peter in the face and said, you're an embarrassment to the gospel. That's what he's saying. You're, you're, you're nullifying the work of salvation because you want to be more accepted by your Jews than the Gentile brothers. I don't care what his background was. I don't care what his racial identity was. He was messing with Jesus Christ. Can I present something to you this morning, church? What we have not discovered yet in our racial confusion Western church is that we're not messing with people. We're messing with Jesus Christ. And we're making an embarrassment to the gospel that we proclaim. We're not just messing with people. We're not just messing with denominations and structures. We're messing with Jesus. Because who is our peace? He is our peace. He is our point of reference. And He has established one new man. Listen to me. You are Christian first. And your color and culture must adapt to that. My color and my culture. Y'all, I'm white. Y'all know I'm white. Translucent white. I don't want to lose it when I come to Jesus. I adapt it. I adapt it to my relationship with Jesus Christ, which means He overrules it. Y'all, when a couple gets married, they come from different backgrounds and experiences into what? A new relationship. And they must learn that what? The new relationship overrules. That's why you leave father and mother. Because father and mother are no longer the last say-so. You know what I deal with in marital counseling all the time? I don't care how much your parents love you. I don't care what kind of inheritance your parents gave you. I don't care how much they've invested in you. The moment you say yes to your spouse, mom and dad never get the last say-so ever again. That is unbiblical. You have left father and mother, and you have cleaved to spouse. And that is the overriding relationship for every other decision I make in marriage. And that's why you can't say, you can't say, Well, first of all, I'm a white Christian or I'm a black Christian because in doing that, you make black and white an adjective and you make Christian a noun. 
And it's the job of the adjective to modify the noun. So if you have Christianity in the noun position and your color in the adjectival position, you've got to keep adjusting the noun of your faith to the adjective of your humanity. You must put Christian actually in the adjectival position, and you've got to put your color in the noun position. So if anything changes, it's the noun of your humanity and not the adjective of your faith. So you're not a white Christian, you're a Christian white. That's what you are. You're not a black Christian, you're a Christian black We are, we are using Christianity and Christ as the main point of reference of our faith. And until black Christians and Hispanic Christians and white Christians and Asian Christians decide, I'm Christian first and I must adjust, I don't give up my culture, but I must submit it to the authority of Christ when it comes into conflict with Him. And until that kind of decision is made, but you say, well, Pastor Craig, we're so different. Well, I hear that in many marriages. We're so different. That's not new. Well, you're different before you got married. You're different before you got saved. And God welcomes and wants all those differences. Well, how can we get along with all those differences? Y'all, did y'all know that oil, oil we, we say oil in the South. Oil and water don't mix. Have you ever tried to put oil and water in the same bottle? You can shake until your arm falls off. And as soon as you get done and set it on the table... Oil and water, not going to get along. Their makeup does not allow them to integrate. Their makeup does not allow them to unify. But as soon as you force them to get them together, they'll go back to their own racial aisles, their own social aisles. They'll separate. But sometimes they'll come together. Whenever I eat a sandwich, how many of y'all like sandwiches? I, unlike our other pastor, want mayonnaise on my sandwich. Mayonnaise is the nectar of heaven. I can eat it straight up out of the jar, folks. I can do mustard too, but mayonnaise, I love it. Now listen to me. Mayonnaise is made of oil and water, but there's a process for me to get my mayo on my sandwich. It's called emulsification. Emulsification is the process of taking two distinct and disjointed things and adding an ingredient so they bring them together to create something new. Water's water. Oil's oil, but when you put egg in the middle of the two, the egg will grab hold of that water, and the egg will grab hold of that oil, and it'll pull them together so I get my mayonnaise on my turkey sandwich. I get mayonnaise because of the process of emulsification. And even though oil and water can't get along, when I introduce the egg, I have created something new without the oil becoming less oil and without the man, or excuse me, without the water becoming less than water. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to create something new, to create something that the world has never seen, where black don't have to be any less black and white don't have to be any less white and Asian don't have to be any less Asian and Hispanic don't have to be any less a, uh, Hispanic, but who, through the process of emulsification, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel we receive from Jesus, Jesus, that we create a brand new church under the Lordship of Jesus Christ without losing our uniqueness. And church, I can't, I can't scream at you this morning, okay? So I hope you're getting the point. You getting the point this morning? Jesus Christ is our peace. He established a whole new way of operating so that the, the, the GED and the PhD can get along together in their loyalty to Jesus because he sits in the seat of their relationship and he can overrule them. Y'all, we have too many white Christians that Jesus can't overrule. And we got too many black Christians that Jesus can't overrule. And you know it 
because they'll quickly go back to their culture. Well, I think, well, I feel, well, I was raised, well, I, this is what, yeah, what, and they'll revert real quickly back on you. And so he uses this concept in verse 16 that he might reconcile, look at the text, both in one body to God through the cross. What is he saying? Jesus Christ wants to reconcile. He wants to bring harmony. He wants to bring unity, togetherness. And he wants to do it through the cross. Church, the cross is not a 2,000-year-old relic. It is a contemporary reality. Why? Watch this. Because the cross was established to deal with sin. Did you hear that? We spend all of our time wanting to talk about skin, but the cross was established to deal with sin. But we want to spend all of our time talking about skin, and if you spend all your time talking about skin, you'll miss sin. And the main reason there's a problem with skin is because we won't address the sin of racism. You do not reconcile by simply saying, well, let's get all together and let's meet together and be in the same connect group and sing Kumbaya. No. You have to identify the sin. You have to apply the cross. You have to address the sin through repentance so that the reconciling work of Jesus Christ can get ignited. And the reconciling work of Jesus will not get ignited until we what? Address the sin, apply the cross, and call people to repentance. So he goes on to verse 20, and look what he says. Because we, don't y'all agree, we mentioned the cross, but the cross ain't the final say. Oh, for a lot of us. Oh, yeah, the cross is the final say, so we mention it. But is it the final say so? Verse 20 said, Jesus Christ, we built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the Chief cornerstone. You know what the cornerstone was? It was the alignment stone that you used to line up all the other stones. And the Bible says it's based on the apostles and prophets. Now, let me say something with you real quick. The apostles and prophets were set up for the writing of God's Word. So when Paul says this, he's not just referring to people. He's referring to biblical authors. And what is he saying? He says, if you're going to align with Christ, you must align with the Word of God. If you're going to fix this race issue, the Bible has to overrule you. Can I just say this morning, we got people going to sociology books before they go to the Bible. Yes. Can I just camp out just for a moment? We got people studying critical race theory before they even consult the scriptures. Yes. Now, you hear me? We got folks reading white fragility before they go to the Bible. No, 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 no. Paul says, if I'm a Christian, the Bible sets on top of all of those things, right on top of it. Those other things might work and they might have great legitimacy and tell you, I'll tell you personally, I've read them. I read a lot up in this in, in 2020 and 2021 to study history and complex structures and, and, and uh, analyze microaggressions and culture and looking into implicit biases. That's all good. As long as the Word of God sits on top of it and the Bible is the reference point for it and Jesus Christ is the main decision maker for it. Amen. And what we have Christians doing is going secular. And then watch this. They have the audacity to judge the sacred, the inerrant Word of God by their secular university or by what the Bible calls human wisdom, man's thoughts. Y'all think about it. 
How much education do we have in America? We got all this education and we still hadn't resolved the race problem. Why? Because we're starting in the wrong place. You're not starting with what God says about race. And you're not going to get through the issues until you start with what God says. As H.B. Charles Jr., African-American preacher said, I love it. He said, black is beautiful when it's biblical. And white is only right when it agrees with holy writ. And what is he saying? Until you start there, you will not see the emulsification of Jesus Christ and the sin of racism be addressed so there can be a bibliocentric reconciliation. He says we're reconciled by the blood. Acts 17, 26, Paul says there's only one race. Many ethnicities. See, we, God expresses himself in a multiplicity of ways. You know, I don't usually drink just straight black coffee. Some of you do that. I like to put sweet cream in it. We don't even call it sweet cream. We just call it creamer. And in my house, what's the brand we have to have? Yeah, no, no, no. We, yeah, well, that's now. That's the healthy stuff. What's, what's the old creamer? Coffee made creamer. Coffee made creamer, right? And it's sweet, and it's white, and it's usually flavored like French vanilla. So my, I got my black coffee that's black, and the cream is white. And I got black coffee, white creamer, those are distinct colors, but when I pour my white creamer in big loads into my black coffee, I have brown coffee, right? I had black, I had white, now I got brown and a whole new color. And I created something new due to the mixture. And can I tell you, the new is quite acceptable to me, right? God's trying to create something new and like the cream in my coffee is sweet. God can give us something sweet in the body of Christ so that we are a sweet-smelling savor of biblical, Christological, theological reconciliation. Y'all, a hundred pianos that are tuned to the same tuning fork will intrinsically be tuned to one another. And we got too many Christians playing their own keys, not operating under the reconciling power of God. So important, and I'm going to land this plane. So important is this issue of reconciliation. The Bible says this in Romans 16, 17. It says, watch out for people who bring division in the church that's not in accordance with the teaching of Christ. He said, you better watch out for racism in the church. Watch out for racists. You can't come into the church of Jesus Christ and bring your secular rules. You come into the church of Jesus Christ to get the teachings of Christ and adjust to those teachings. That's right. Can I just say, confessionally, if white pastors over the last 100 years would have taken their stand, if white pastors in America would have said, you don't bring your white culture in our church and deny people access, equal access to worship God, right. we'd be in a different place. Right. Do you know if black pastors would speak to predominantly black people and say, you don't bring your black culture into this church, the church of Jesus Christ, and don't follow, deny people equal access, we'd be a whole lot further along. Now listen to me, church. Maybe there was some pain. I don't want you to miss this because this is what I get from people. We must show empathy. We must say to people, I see you are hurt, and we will walk with you in empathy, but don't let empathy change the rules. You don't say, because I'm empathetic, Christ no longer has the final say-so. No, no, no. We love you to the teachings of Christ. 
and we'll confront you and we'll challenge you and we'll understand you and we'll walk with you in empathy. But y'all, we're fighting in here, the church house, and they're fighting out there and the world doesn't have a model to look at. Can I say every Christian who names the name of Christ must be actively involved in reconciliation. And just like a football team, they're different races, but only one uniform. Why? Because we all headed to the same goal line. You know what the same goal line is? The exaltation of Jesus Christ through His reconciled body with the cross and the Bible having the last word. Not what your mom taught you. Not what your dad taught you. Not what your culture taught you. Unless it agrees with what God has said. I love what Colossians 1, 19-23 says. Paul says, if you want to see God, you better focus on reconciliation because Jesus reconciled people vertically to Him and He reconciled people horizontally to one another. I think you can say with me this morning, it's time for racism to end, isn't it? It's time for a racist Christian to confess their sin, isn't it? It's time for racist believers to confess and allow and apply the power of the cross in repentance. It's time for those who refuse to forgive to confess the sin of unforgiveness and forgive whites or forgive blacks. You know what I hear from blacks a lot right now? No justice, no peace. Got that. You know what I say? No forgiveness, no peace. You better get that too. And both of them have to happen simultaneously. Both of them have to happen at the exact same moment. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll end with this passage, verse 16, 19, 16 through 20. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the earth's suit. That's the way we used to do. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, He's a new creation. He says you don't judge people by the color of their skin. We don't look at people like that. That was the old life, y'all. That's how hell looks at people first. Hell looks at people first by their skin. It's not the starting point anymore. He goes on and says, we're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Now all things are of God. You want a, you want a little verse about how much God loves diversity? All, all, all diversity is from Him. All the different multi-ethnicities, multi they're all from God. That's what it said. Look at it. Who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Next text. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors. Everybody say ambassadors. We're ambassadors for who? For Christ. As though God were pleading to our lost neighbors through us. As God was pleading through our lost co-workers through our life. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who goes to another country on behalf of their country to represent their country on foreign soil. And he says, we're ambassadors of heaven. We're not ambassadors of hell, and we're not ambassadors of our own country. No, we are on earth. That's the foreign country. And what is your ambassadorship about? Your ambassadorship is about the ministry of reconciliation. Look at me, church. You know what that means? You should be healing folks. You should be healing folks. Title of my message is, we are to be healers. If you're a a believer, you should be healing folks around you. Black people should be healing black people. 
White people should be healing white people. White people should be going and integrating white people with more black people. Hispanic people should be going and healing Hispanic people to be more connected to Caucasian people. Asian people should go and heal Asian people to be more connected to black people. We are to be healers because he has given us as ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven, the ministry of reconciliation. And every Christian on this planet ought to be correcting the sin and providing the opportunity for forgiveness and then serving together to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Y'all, if you're in the Olympics and you win the gold medal, they don't ask you what your favorite song is. They don't ask you what song you'd like to play on the podium. You get up on the podium and they play the national anthem of the nation you represent. While you may be an individual and you have your own desire, you are a part of something bigger. You represent your country. And I don't care how white you are. I don't care how black you are. I don't care how Hispanic you are. I don't care how Asian you are. We represent another country. And we may have our own desires and we may have our own little... once, but we should be agents and ministers of reconciliation. You ought to be healing people wherever you go. Why? Because Christ forgave you. So you have to go help your racist parents forgive others. You got to go to other racist people you know in your life and help them to apply the power of the cross Confess the sin of racism and be changed. Addressing the sin, not skipping the sin, but going towards reconciliation is the goal. Can I tell you something as we wind down? Do you know in heaven, whatever race you are right now, you're going to be in heaven. What you is is what you're going to be. You know what that means? If you're white now, you're going to be white in heaven. If you're black now, you're going to be black in heaven. The Bible says in John, John saw heaven, Revelation 7, 9, he looked up in heaven and saw people from every tribe, nation, and kindred. He saw them, so there were visual differences. He didn't hear them. He saw them. They looked different. They had different skins. They had different makeup. So let me say, anybody in this room who didn't like who you are, you have insulted God. You don't have the right, if you're white, to want to be black. And you don't have the right, if you're black, to want to be white. You don't have the right, if you're Hispanic, to not want to be Germanic. That rhymes. Because God has what? Set it up for all eternity to operate that way. And in the meantime, we're supposed to be modeling what it's going to be there by how we work it out down here. Can I say at the end of this month, may we give the world something to see that overrides racism and evil and demonstrates what God's kingdom looks like when people are held to that standard. Right? We are to be a preview of a coming attraction. Y'all know that previews always give you the best clips. You would know a movie sucked by watching its preview, would you? You ever watched a movie and been just been really disappointed? What in the world? Because what do they do in the previews? They give you the love scene, the violence scene, or the tenth scene. The best scenes, Right? And there's a coming show one day where every believer is going to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And you know what we're called to be right now? We're called to be the previews. Causing people to look at us and say, man, there's a picture of something I haven't seen before. So that they might get interested and want to take and buy a ticket to the show. But then we can tell them, you ain't got to buy the ticket because the ticket's already been bought. 
And Jesus Christ has already provided the way of forgiveness and salvation through His blood shed on the cross. And today you can what? You can accept His free token, His free gift of grace. You can repent of your own self-righteousness and accept the righteousness that comes through faith in God and become a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Yeah, let's give God praise for His goodness. That was a weak, weak, weak sauce. So hear me. As we move forward, core value of our church is multicultural fellowship. To not just see multiracial. See, there's multicultures even in one race. Right? To see a multicultural fellowship. What does that mean? It means that we have to be intentional. About what? Calling out the sin. Applying the cross to it. Calling people to repentance. And then and only then will the reconciling work of God get ignited in people's hearts. You know, I had a real hard time when I first became a Christian, especially in a very established environment like I was in, because my wife has been a Christian all her life, and I would get around people that were pastors even in her life, and even grandparents, that generation, the builder generation, I'd get around and they'd been faithfully serving God for 50 years, and I'd hear them. I'd hear them talking, and I would hear them say the word nigger, just in everyday conversation, not negro, Right? Very derogatory term. And these are people that really confuse me because, again, I, even before I was a Christian, I didn't have that sense of racism. I just, it just wasn't. In, now, I'm not going to try to say that I'm free from any kind of microaggressions or indiscriminate. Or, I, 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 hear me. I, I need grace like anyone else. But it really confused me that once I then got in the church, my yes. heart started hearing people who were faithful, faithful to pastor for decades. And there's this sense of deep-seated racism. And I want to say to us, listen, friends, yes, we can repent, and we should repent from allowing decades of this to progress, to get us to the place we are now. But then we want to call those who also have been hurt to also apply the cross and extend forgiveness so that the reconciling work of God can happen across the body. Don't you want to see that in our church? We are multi-ethnic. We are already in this communication, in our culture, in our community. But we have the opportunity in the metro Atlanta area to see more and more cultures be reconciled one to another. It starts vertical, and then it moves horizontal. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.